Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Running through the streets, solving all the mysteries, crushes and aliens, lots of other crazy Hello, everyone. Hi. We're very excited. I'm very excited for DB Cooper. There's like a lot of pressure on me. No, there's no pressure. No, there's no pressure. Not my dude. So I hope I get justice. No, listen. He's not your dude, but like you created the crush on DB Cooper. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like your DB Cooper research and script is valid. Just because I did the first two episodes about him, like, does not mean, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like if anyone is qualified, it's you. I feel like if anything, I'm too close to it, even. So it's probably better that you're doing it. I think if one of us is closer to me, although I will say, I think I may have met my match in this episode. (laughs) I have a note about it. We'll get to it. But I really came away from that episode being like, huh. Yeah. I would, if we knew who he was, I would have to compete for his love with. (laughs) <laughs> one very specific person in this yeah um true. who is i think he needs a hug and like a hot chocolate yeah that that sounds right that tracks um okay so today we are talking about episode one of the new netflix series db cooper colon where are you <laughs> db db coop where are you i just like got a plane to catch now i just like what you're not fooling me because i can see that your tie is a clip on um okay so episode one is called take the money and jump i feel like they really really phoned it in no i love that i hate it Mm -hmm. that's okay here's why it's too campy for me (laughs) oh no i love that about it it's like too much. This is like when my mom saw West Side Story, the movie, after years, decades of that being one of her favorite movies of all mm-hmm. time. Like one of the first movies I ever watched as a child. Yeah. And then she came back from this movie and was like, I just don't buy that two street gangs would dance. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, now you stop leaning into the camp of West Side Story. And I'm, yeah. I'm pulling on my mom right now. Nice. But I just did. Yeah. It's the combo of D.B. Cooper colon, where are you? And take them. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yeah. I do like the call, the call to action. <laughs> the episode opens. Strong choice. San Diego, California. 2013, an area I didn't even know was associated with D.B. Cooper. We see a marina. We're shown a boat named Poverty Sucks. Both of the S's are dollar signs. Mm -hmm. We see like like an apartment complex with like classic 70s, 80s Spanish style architecture, like very San Diego. Mm -hmm. Then a truck towing a boat enters frame. We have a voice off camera saying, here he is, here he is. And another voice says, stay low, guys. We hear over the walkie-talkie, Target is at the place of business now. (laughs) And another officer says, this could go south pretty quickly. The Target gets out of the car. We cut to a a man at a fence who yells into a parking lot, Bob, why won't you just come out and say that you are not D.B. Cooper? And Bob shakes his head in disbelief. Match two. No, really quick. <laughs> so this is footage from the documentary that if you listen to the show, if you've listened to episode 45, the 40, 40, the, the, the second part after 40 interim episodes of the first episode, which is <laughs> episode five, this is the, this is the documentary that I used in the DB Cooper part two, the suspects episode. It is, yes. And oh, it's really? amazing. And as soon as they played it, I was like, I'm so glad these guys, like, now I know that they're affiliated with this film. And I'm like, thank God Tom Colbert got another shot at a Doobie Cooper documentary because that's all he does. <laughs> is that the same? Is that the, same the guy? Oh, okay. He is such a character. He, like, produced the other documentary along with the other guy who's yelling through the fence, who's the, um, like, journalist that he got on board. That is. So incredible. I'm so yeah. excited. That paints this in a whole new light because Tom Colbert is a capital C character. He is, yes. Okay, so we cut to a news report from the 70s. And it says, on Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, I wish I could do this accent, but I can't. A Northwest <laughs> flight was commandeered. But that's like more 30s and 40s. I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> It's one of my great regrets that I can do New Zealand and not like 70s America. <laughs> we learned that the FBI couldn't crack the case and that Cooper became a legend after hijacking a plane and parachuting out of it with $200,000 in cash. Now, I think that if I didn't know the story of D.B. Cooper, I would be very confused at this point. Mm-hmm. Luckily. Wait, did we already do the Mad Men, Mad Men intro? No, okay. we're not there. Great. So. We've just passed the fit. We learn that we've just passed the 50th anniversary and it's still the only unsolved skyjacking in the literal history of time. The only unsolved case of act of air piracy <laughs> in history. Um, some guy, I don't You're remember jacking the sky. No, I know, but I know, but you would call it like carjacking hijacking. But what is hi- it should be hijacking. plane jacking or hijacking? It's not like sky. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, go ahead. I like skyjacking actually as a no. word. I'm just saying. I agree. I'm furious. 
So I don't remember who it is who said this, but someone says he got away with it. He stuck it to the man and he didn't hurt any civilians. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's yeah. true. Correct. And we are told that there is a team that believes that they have found D.B. Cooper. They say they have over 100 piece of, uh, pieces of evidence, and we're dealing with a man who has multiple identities and is a con artist. And then we smash to the best opening credits I've ever seen. How would you? It's the, mad, it's the Mad Men intro. <laughs> yeah, it's the Mad Men intro. I wrote, it's Bond meets Mad Men meets whatever that poster that all of the dudes I dated in college had of the Hitchcock movie in their room there. What is yeah. Vertigo. Vertigo. Yeah. Is it red and black? Is that what you're thinking of? Sure. I could name that is what once you have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, we go, <laughs> I was like, this is, it's very like, take the money and jump. <laughs> what if we did a Mad yeah. Men opening? Yeah. Catch me if you can. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. They really did something with that. i agree (laughs) so after the beautiful opening credits we meet tom colbert who is maggie's best friend (laughs) the author of the last master outlaw we learn that he he is also a consultant writer producer and former media executive (laughs) yeah aren't we all yes (laughs) consultant is fake like that's a fake thing yeah yeah but you can get paid to do it that's what's crazy i know i have a friend who is a consultant and you could be a podcast consultant we could she's like a like a business consultant for like businesses and i'm like what what does that mean what do you tell them what to do i don't know all her bosses are Mm -hmm. old white men though so we're gonna get her out yeah so tom has been on a 10-year journey he says that the question he always gets is why he does not really answer. He says it's affected (laughs) his family members. He's working on this with his wife. It's affected her. They've spent a lot of their own money on this journey, but everyone in their family agreed to stick with it because they believed that they had found the truth. That's not enough of a why for me, but that's fine. Then we meet Jeffrey Gray author of Skyjack, colon, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, and my now sworn nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. He points out that what D.B. Cooper was able to pull off was incredible, especially considering that it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which is one of the busiest travel days of the year. He sounds like my mom. Being like, you got to get to JFK early because it is the Wednesday morning. (laughs) That's what she sounds like. So then we meet Bill Mitchell, who was a passenger on Northwest Orient Flight 305. I love Bill Mitchell. He's in like every documentary. Is he really? Yeah. He's fun because I don't, I've never watched a D.B. Cooper documentary. So I don't know who like the regular cast of characters is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, wait, hold on. Let's go to the chat really quickly. I think we missed a lot. Is DB even real? Yeah. He's as real as you believe he is. Thank you, yeah. Patty. That's great. DB is as real as you believe he is. He's real in our hearts. True. Well put, Eliza. <laughs> Still jacking if you don't drive the vehicle. Good question. I really think we need to figure out what 
like as a society, we need to come to a consensus on what jacking. (laughs) (laughs) Hattie is asking the real question we all want to know the answer to for you, Kayla, which is how does Tom Colbert rank on a scale of one to Keith Morrison? Doesn't even fucking compare. There's no, yeah, there's no, no one is on that scale. Do you know what I mean? No one will ever be on that scale. But no shade to Tom Colbert. No one's on that scale ever. Like no one's even close. Not even close. Also, here's the thing is that Tom kind of like makes me nervous. Like if he came up and started talking to me about this at a bar, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I love D.B. Cooper too. I would be like, I don't, um, I don't speak English. Like I would have to like... <laughs> Like immediately disengage. You cannot. You can. There's no number for what I would pay to watch you say to someone. Oh, um, I don't speak English. <laughs> oh, uh, like I don't speak English actually. I mean, how many times did you see me in Mexico, like barely get by, and then have to be like, oh, I'm it saying in Spanish. I'm not very good at speaking Spanish. Like <laughs> the same vibe. So, Bill Mitchell passenger on the flight at the time he was a sophomore at the university of oregon flying home to see his parents go Go that's my alma mater (laughs) um so it was sunny he says it was sunny out but it was cloudy he says he was sitting on the back left of the plane and he didn't notice anyone around him until they took off at which point he noticed a guy sitting next to him with sunglasses on and he thought quote that's kind of different who does this guy think he is (laughs) (laughs) you know how you know it's the 70s because he was on a plane and didn't notice if there was anyone sitting next to him yeah (laughs) like can you imagine being on a plane now and being like and not remembering if there was anyone next to you or near you well i think he across the aisle i don't know i don't know but yeah i mean but i'm also painfully aware like you know that feeling right before they close the doors where no one's sitting next to you and you're like oh my god i'm gonna get away with it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah. Like, like I feel that so viscerally. Yeah. So the plane takes off and the man, I think you have some fun details about this part, which I would like you to set. Oh yeah. But I was surprised that they didn't talk about it, but yeah, go ahead. I know I was also surprised, but I think they were like, had a lot to say about this. Yeah, for sure. So the man with the sunglasses passes a note to a flight attendant named Florence Schaffner. She ignores him at first. And then he says, what is, what did you write in your. So, yeah. So she actually, Florence Schaffner put, she, he handed her some paper and she assumed he was a lonely businessman. Cause as they <laughs> talked about, and I'm glad they did <laughs> the sexualization of um, flight attendants, but she thought he was a lonely businessman. So she took the slip of paper and just put it in her purse and, walked away uh like and went and did something else and like a few minutes later she passed back by him and he leaned into her and said ma'am you're gonna want to look at that note i have a bomb i am like bummed that they didn't say like i think the phrasing ma'am you're gonna want to have a look at that note yeah classic i do too in the documentary he was like they said he said i want you to read the note and i was like yeah Whatever. So thank God you're here. <laughs> uh, there are just like a lot of little details that I know they had to cut for time and I totally get it. But like some of those things are just classic to me. I feel like. Yeah, I agree. Oh, here I have it. It's miss. You'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. So good. 
Yeah. Um, oh wait, that's so the note, and then in the documentary they said the note read, "Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit beside me." So the thing is, we actually don't know for sure what the note said because he took it back later. So then, what the heck are these people doing? Well, that's I'm sure recounted from the witnesses. Basically, they were like, the note effectively said, I have a bomb in my briefcase. And he opened his briefcase and showed her what she thought looked like a bomb. She saw like electrical wire and stuff. And we actually don't know to this day if it even was a bomb. Yeah, it could have been fake. Yeah. Just what I would have done. (laughs) Yeah. I would have made an elaborate ruse just for the pageantry. Yeah. So Bill Mitchell says that he remembers Florence like sitting down and talking to the man and then she would like get up and go to the phone, but he didn't have any clue what was going on. The man asks for $200,000 in American currency and four parachutes. Tom Colbert says that this guy was smart and he ordered four parachutes because he thought that they were going to like dummy up a parachute on him so he would die. But if he's getting four, they would think he's going to take a hostage. So then they wouldn't dummy one up. Yeah. Um, so then the pilot comes on the speaker and says, we have engine trouble and we're going to run out of fuel. Everybody move up to the front of the plane. Bill says he had no idea what was going on, but he figured they're still flying. So there was nothing to worry about. Yeah. Um, the man said he didn't want the plane to land in Seattle until everything he asked for was properly staged at the airport. So I, they spent like two and a half hours circling Seattle. Um, and then once it was ready, the plane landed There were like snipers watching the plane. The man had the flight attendants close all the windows. One of the flight attendants went out, was handed the money by a detective, got the parachutes, and then the 36 passengers got off the plane. And Bill says that a bus came to take them from the plane to the airport because they were a mile away. And that there were hundreds of news people and the FBI waiting. And according to Bill, they were like, Oh my God. Yeah. You were hijacked. And he, they were like, what? <laughs> yeah. The craziest thing about this whole case to me is that they had no idea. None of the passengers knew until they were accosted the- by the press. Like even on that bus ride, they weren't like, that's weird. We parked in the middle of the tarmac. <laughs> yeah. I think it was because like we're circling for two hours. Commercial flights were like new. Yeah. It was a different time. It was a different time. We'll get to how different of a time it was. Um, Mm -hmm. So we then are treated to footage of other passengers telling reporters that they had no idea what was going on until they landed. Um, We see Florence Schaffner in an interview, and she says that she saw in the man's briefcase a big battery with six dynamite sticks wrapped around it. And she said that he told her that all he had to do was, quote, attach this wire to this gadget here and we'd all be dead. And then Bill says that when he got home, it started catching up to him that he had been sitting next to a bomb. So then we launch into a very fun description of how in the fall of 1971, airline travel was so different. Jeffrey Gray says, quote, walking into an airport back then was like walking into a supermarket. And they show footage of an ad of a man boarding a plane from like a tarmac staircase. 
And the stewardess says destination. And he says, let's just say where the action is, which I think would get you detained now. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe if you're white, it wouldn't, but like, I know a number of people who would not (laughs) make it onto that. Wouldn't vent. Yeah. I wouldn't venture that, you know, um, hold on. Let's see what's happening in the chat really quickly. We have a really good Firefly reference from Hearst that I missed. Um, I don't care. I'm still free. You can't jack the sky from me. Um, That's also how I react when anyone talks to me at a bar. I mean, we were actually, what we would do when we were barflies is we would like reel them in and then devastate them by being mean. (laughs) We weren't mean. We would just make up entirely different lives. We did that too. But remember when we would play that game, um, the like find the difference game, and we were really good at it. And then men would come up and try to help, and we would be like, "We don't." Know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we did get into a habit of lying for fun. <laughs> See what we could get away yeah. with. Um. Daniel says, is it weird that haven't gone to a bar before? I'm going to need a subject. Daniel, if you're saying that you haven't gone to a bar before, that's not weird. And you probably should just not because they're not that great. <laughs> There's really nothing to gain. If you want to go, go. But le- like, really, you're not missing anything, I promise. <laughs> Hattie says, we need to land. We're low fuel. Proceeds to circle the airport for two hours. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like none of the passengers were like, that seems off. Yeah. Um, now I'm like, if the if anything dings while we're in the air, I'm like, this is it. So, yeah, it's going down. Where that's it's yeah. like the opposite of um, yeah. What's that movie with John Cusack? Must love planes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, say anything. Sure. Where he takes Diane onto the plane, and he's like. When, like, when you're ascending, like, once that seat seat beings, then you know you're safe. And I was like, I think that's a lie. (laughs) Yeah. It might not be. So, then we meet Brian Burrow, the author of Days of Rage, who says that when people ask about airport security back in the 70s, his response is, quote, what airport security? I don't remember any at all. (laughs) And then they show footage of OJ in the commercial that I think was for Hertz Rent-A-Car, like running through the airport with not a care in the world. Like if Mm -hmm. I did it, this is how I would have run. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And they're saying like, nobody searched you or wanted you. You just walked in and put down 20 bucks and got on a flight to Dallas. Yeah. It's crazy, and they point this out, but it's crazy because D.B. Cooper did. He, like, walked in. He, like, put down $20 cash, and he bought a ticket to Seattle, and he was just on the plane. Like, that's... You didn't even have to get there an hour before the flight. There was no airport dads. (laughs) What would my mom have done with all that extra time? I know. So they tell us that the 70s was the beginning of the boom of mass air travel and... (laughs) they wanted to make the experience a fun, good time. And unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the flight attendants became fetishized. 
And they show an unparalleled ad for an airline where a flight attendant is literally stripping. And the text overlay says, Braniff International presents the airstrip. And the voiceover says, quote, when a Braniff International hostess meets you on the airplane, she'll be dressed like this. And the best part about this is that she's dressed like a 70s flight attendant, which means she's wearing a long sleeve dress that is like a high, like a mock neck, boat neck, wool, like shift dress to her knees. Yeah. Full stockings and like a kitten heel. And then they have her stripping. And I was like, that's the most 70s, like sexist nonsense. Like make her, make her cover up, but also take it off. We meet cultural historian MJ Rimsha Pavlovska, I think is how you would say her name, who says that in the early 70s, flight attendants had a very hard time. They were sexually harassed constantly. They were not paid as much as the men they worked with. They had impossible schedules, and they were held to really rigorous standards about their looks. Then we're treated to another ad that has a picture of a woman, and the text reads, Delta is an airline run by professionals like Chris Conrad, stewardess, pretty, resourceful, alert, efficient, confident, and sociable chosen from 25 applicants. You'll have a nice trip because we have 2,300 Chris Conrad's. Can you imagine applying for a job and there's only 25 applicants? I, that blew my mind. She also looks like Lindsay Lohan when she was blonde. (laughs) Yeah. And then they show us another ad in which a man says with his mouth, she's not just pretty, she's pretty smart, like to a woman. Mm. So all this to say that, as Maggie said, when D.B. Cooper passed Florence the note, MJ says he was probably the 10th person that day to pass her a note. And so she was like, dismissed it. Then we see some news coverage of like, very unexplained incidents of hijacking. Like on, we see on September 7th, 1970, um, guerrilla hijack teams struck four airlines almost simultaneously. And then on September 12th, 1970, like a plane blew up. And I didn't really understand what those, what was happening there, but I guess, they were just examples because then we meet John Mendez, who is the former chief of disguise. My favorite title I've ever seen in a documentary for a job ever. Unbelievable. What does it mean? It's like the FBI's former chief of disguise. <laughs> it's so good. Was she a costume designer? Was she the master of disguise? Was she was totally she? enough for the turtle club? These are the big questions no one's asking. But we here at Mystery Team Inc., we're asking. We're, we ask, here at Mystery Team Inc., we ask the hard-hitting questions. Are you turtling? Like, slime mold. <laughs> what is it? Uh, yeah. Very proud of that. You're welcome, everyone, for slime mold. Um, so the former chief of disguise... We should Google that and see what it is. At the CIA says that at the beginning of like the history of hijacking, I guess, they would get like one report a month of a hijacking and it just kept growing and growing. 
She notes that all of the hijackings had a political goal. They were trying to punish a country, punish a group. They were trying to make themselves seem bigger and badder than they were. We're told there's only two reasons you hijack a plane, either to threaten to kill people and get money, or you want it to get somewhere, typically Cuba. Um, And they say that the Cuban ones were almost all young radicals who needed to get out of town. Um, Then we see Jeffrey Gray again, who says, with hijackings, the art form evolved, and the greatest artist artist of them all was T.B. Cooper. So... D.B. Cooper has his money and his four parachutes. The passengers are off the plane. The plane takes off again, headed to Reno per his instructions. He tells them he wants to fly at 250 miles an hour, which is very slow for a jet, with the flaps down at minimum height. And the pilots were like, we don't think that the plane can do that because of science and math. And he was like, it can do it. And then they head south over an area called the Dark Divide, And I don't know what that means. I don't know either. Okay, great. I think it just refers to like like topographical features of the area, but I'm not sure. Okay. Another mystery solved. Another Uh, mystery unsolved. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Um, Flight attendant Tina Mucklow was alone with him sitting in the last row. We see her in a press conference and she says... He was not nervous. He seemed rather nice and other than he seemed rather nice other than he wanted certain things to be done. So he sends Tina to the cockpit and tells her not to come out. He's in the back all by himself. Around 8, 12 PM, we are told there was a popping sensation in the ears of the pilots because the pressure in the cabin had changed because the aft stairs had gone down. Captain Bill Radchak says that he told air traffic controllers, quote, I think that our friend just took yes. leave of us. So good. Jeffrey says, quote, to, to, to truly Amazing. appreciate what Cooper did, close your eyes and imagine walking down those aft stairs. It's late at night. There's a lot of rain. It's late at night. There's a lot of rain. You're hearing the engines of this jet in your ear. Imagine looking out in the middle of the darkness and then walking down another step and another step, and just looking out, asking yourself the question, when's the time to jump? He jumps. Then we see footage of a man named Sheriff Eugene Cotton, who says, quote, well, he either got away or else he sure made a big hole in the ground out there. And if he made a hole in the ground, he's going to be hard to find. (laughs) And then I think the reporter says something like a hole in the ground because he fell and died. And the sheriff's like, yeah, (laughs) Hundreds of troops comb the woods near Woodland, which I think is the wooded area. Oh, east to the town of Ariel, Washington. Nobody knew where DB had bailed out of the plane, where he landed, if he survived. John Mendez tells us the main problem the FBI faced initially is that they didn't know exactly where that plane was when he exited the plane. There were all these variables. What about the wind? Maybe the wind had you a little off course. So the terrain that they're searching would be rather huge. On Thanksgiving Day, people all around the world got wind of the story. Jeffrey says, the case went from being a truly phenomenal act of air piracy into an American folk legend. Um, They show interviews of people talking about D.B. Cooper. And one guy is asked if he thinks D.B. Cooper is a hero. And he says, oh, sure. 
because the guy evidently really took a lot of time to plan this whole thing out. And I respect a man who takes time to do a job well done. I think he's one of the slickest cats to ever walk on the face of the earth right now. I wrote that down. I was like, I want a shirt that says one of the slickest cats. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I want, we should make sure it's with the D.B. Cooper sketch that says. Yes. One of the slickest cats to ever walk on the face of the earth right now. So then I wrote this yes. sentence. Jeffrey, who at this point I think has a bigger crush on D.B. Cooper than I do. Has. The details you just cannot yes. make up start with the alias. Um, we learn that D.B. Cooper is not actually the hijacker. In Portland, he gave the name Dan Cooper to the ticket agent. But what happened was somebody in the media made a mistake. And they were listening to investigators and overheard the name D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper. And then... It and then made one of the greatest branding decisions by accident in the history of time. Unbelievable. A guy in the documentary name whose name I can, like the first I heard of him was like beyond the time where they put up his little title with his full name. So all I know is that his last name is Euless. Um, but he says that everybody pretty quickly realized it's not D.B. Cooper, it's Dan Cooper, but D.B. Cooper is more badass name. So. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote, as we know, branding is important. Yeah. And it's way better branding. It's way better. Dan Cooper, nobody has a crush on Dan Cooper. No. No. Um, Jeffrey tells us that in the Pacific Northwest, you might even say he was kind of a god. And I think he needs to calm down about it. I don't know what his deal is. It's giving sports. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's really giving. What it's giving like Tom Brady, which I just <laughs> have no space for. Do people like Tom Brady though? Uh, it just depends on whether you're from one specific square mile in New England or not. <laughs> Isn't he the one who did a bad thing? <laughs> they all did a bad thing. I know, but like a sports-related bad thing, not like eating oh, a woman. I don't know. I think he has like the most Super Bowl rings. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. Can we move on? Because we're really out of my depth here. Didn't he deflate a football? Oh, is that what he... Was that that deflate gate is what you're saying? Daniel, do you know the answer to this? <laughs> I, feel like wow. he, I feel like he's made fun of me for not knowing sports before. No, I think that they... Wait... Did he make fun of you for not knowing sports or was it like someone making fun of me for not knowing superheroes? (laughs) Oh, oh. Could go either way. Oh, I don't. That one definitely happened though. Okay. So it's giving sports. We don't like it. Next. (laughs) So Jeffrey compares him to Billy the Kid and also like all the famous robbers and gangsters. (laughs) And then a guy named Brian Burrow comes in and says, quote, We prize the outlaw. We are fascinated with those who break the rules because 95% of us don't. Is that, is that psychology? (laughs) Is that why you're drawn to DB Cooper because you prize the outlaw? I don't think so. Um, Daniel says definitely wasn't sports. Oh, oh man. That's just my inner voice then. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
Then we meet John Hubuck, the former executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, who says that the Western world has to have an answer to every question. And it's really frustrating to them when a story doesn't have an ending. It doesn't have to be a happy ending, but it needs a period at the end of the sentence. And the D.B. Cooper case is a prime example of a sentence that's been left uncompleted. So we learn that they're... Welcome to the story of our life. I know. Here's the thing. It's fun to watch other people be like, um, oh, we don't know the answer when it's like, step into my hell. You know? We did it to ourselves, but... Yeah. You're all going to be fine. So we learn that there has been something north of a thousand. It's about learning to enjoy the story and the journey for what it is and not caring about the outcome. It's about the journey. I feel like I want to say that to everybody. Okay. <laughs> Eliza says, as an MTI listener, I felt high and mighty in the world of not knowing. <laughs> Love that. You're correct. Yes. Everyone who listens to the podcast builds up their not knowing resilience. I can admit that I yeah, don't know that. that. It actually is really helpful in day-to-day life. Yes. I just, I've learned to just wander around and if I don't know where I'm going to just ask the nearest person, like, I don't know where I am. Do you know where this is? And generally they know. And it's not even embarrassing at all. Is it dangerous? Probably. So some of the suspects are what the documentary calls compelling. The first one we are introduced to is Richard Floyd McCoy, who they describe, and also Maggie weigh in on these, please. Um, Richard Floyd McCoy, who was an outstanding suspect. He was in Vietnam. He was an expert parachutist. He skyjacked another 727 and jumped out of it five months after the D.B. Cooper stunt. Um, There's one problem, which is that all the witnesses that saw D.B. Cooper looked at McCoy and were like, that's not him. Yeah, just a copycat. So then another suspect is Dwayne Weber, who they said looked a lot like the second sketch released of D.B. Cooper and who also gave a death, death, bad, death, bad confession. It's a, they lost your secrets. Um, he apparently was living a double life, one as a charming insurance salesman and the other as a career criminal. He was arrested 16 times, but there was no proof that he had parachute training. Um, and he was a criminal that had a hard time staying out of jail. They said that not hundred percent sure what that has to do with the rest of it. But I feel like they were trying to, at one point, in my research, I feel like at one time, at one point they were trying to prove that he actually was in jail at the time, but I don't know. Oh, I see. Interesting. So then the next suspect who I was hesitant to even bring up is a woman named Barb Dayton, whose dead name is Bobby Dayton. Apparently, she confessed to being D.B. Cooper. Um, She is trans and had the first operation in Washington State to happen. Apparently, before she transitioned, she was like a tough guy and a brawler. And then after she transitioned, she was like a sweet librarian. And Jeffrey says 
It was the ultimate disguise. As a man, Bob Dayton was a guy with a grudge, merchant marine. He could jump out of airplanes. But there's no evidence that ties her to the D.B. Cooper case at all. And tell me if I'm wrong, but it does kind of feel like they were like, well, maybe because she, like, before she was barred, you know, it's the perfect guy. It just feels, like, icky to me. Yeah, I totally agree. So, goodbye. Um... Then there's Ken Christensen, and the only piece of information we're given about him is that he worked for Northwest Orient Airlines. Is there more to him as a suspect? Wait, say the name again. Ken Christensen? I don't remember him. I don't know if I covered him. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I know anything about him. He said... They said Ken Christensen and Sheridan Peterson. Ken worked for Northwest Orient Airlines. Sheridan worked at Boeing. And then they said, for a, quote, bunch of technical reasons, end quote, both of them have been ruled out. And that's the most that we get about those two. Um, mm-hmm. Jeffrey says that even though we still don't know who D.B. Cooper is, what's remarkable is how much people still identify with him 50 years later. We're then taken to Victor 23, a D.B. Cooper-themed bar in Van. I want to go to the D.B. Cooper bar. We have to go. and the- I know what I said about bars, but this is different. This is different. They have Theme a beer bars are okay. <laughs> All the beers are named after, like, things in the case. Like, it's so good. I want to go. And then they say, people still look to embed him into film and culture. And I paused it, and I wrote, I bet this is going to be that scene from Loki. And then the next note is yeah. fucking called it. Yeah. And that's the only thing they put in for like people embedding him into film and culture in that part. They do show. Yeah. Like in the rest of the episode, a couple clips of like other history channel reenactment shows. Yeah. But the only big one is there's drunk history where what's his name from SNL played him. And mm-hmm. Jama Mays is the flight attendant and then there's mm-hmm. Loki as D.B. Cooper mm-hmm. so Brian Burroughs says the far more interesting story than a guy who jumped out of a plane is everyone's fascination with it I disagree but I will let them have that also yeah, I think the plane thing is the cool part I think the thing <laughs> where he jumped out of a plane and got away with it is pretty cool um, then yeah. they also show like a scene from without a paddle where they're like Oh, but it's D.B. Cooper's treasures here. And I forgot. I was going to say the same thing. I haven't seen that movie in like 10 years, but there's no part of my brain that had any recollection that that played any role in that film. No, no. I ha- the whole no, but it seems like it might have been the inciting incident. <laughs> yes, I looked it up and I think the plot is like three friends who are on the verge of some kind of life milestone, like go on a camping trip to find D.B. Cooper's treasure. Great. And it's fucking um, Seth Green, right? And Doc Shepard and Mm -hmm. some other white guy, I think. Yeah. So, or maybe there was a token in there. Who's to say? Mm -hmm. Um, It's all white guys, right? Probably. You're going to anger the the hardcore without a paddle cult fan base is going to come for you. Come at me. Come at me. I'll look it up right now. Don't worry. Um... Yeah, it's three white dudes. Oh, it's um, Shaggy from... Yeah, that's a good oh, cast. I love him. Okay, so... 
Yeah. Fast forward to Los Angeles, 2016. Tom Colbert is giving a press conference at the Sheraton Universal where I once went to a high school dance. I wrote, love the shot of the Sheraton Universal. That is the location of my junior year winter formal. Winter formal? <laughs> yes. Okay, great. I could not remember which one it was. I very, very vividly remember going to a dance at the Sheraton Universal. Um, he is yes. announcing that they have received a tip about the identity of TB Cooper. A friend of him, a friend of his named Rich Kashansky called him. He says, I've known Rich for 25 years. I drop everything when Rich calls. Um, Rich Koshansky, cameraman, who we see wearing a white Henley and a fringed suede jacket with a bald head and a chin strap. Incredible production. Love. Rich tells us that he was in Vegas shooting a series of infomercials when a friend of a friend told him that they knew a gambler who knew who D.B. Cooper was. He said that he had the guy on camera, that he seemed credible, and that he was willing to take polygraph tests. Tom says, was it Tom? Tom says, what I found on Ron Carlson's tape was a game changer. So the story is, in 1978, a man named Ron Carlson was running drugs up and down the coast. And he says he didn't meet D.B. Cooper until 1978. He met him because he was his cocaine supplier and his real name was Dick Briggs. And he said from the time that they met, Dick was saying, uh, telling him that he was D.B. Cooper. And he kept saying, like, you don't believe me, do you? And then apparently at a party in 1980, he told him, I'm going to tell you something that will prove to you who I am. That couple over there, they and their son are the ones that are going to find my money. He said on the North, on the quote, that North shore in three days, they're going to find some of my money on February 10th, 1989, three days later, money was found a few yards from the shoreline of the Columbia river by a man named Howard Ingram and his son. Howard says, I was going to build a fire and I had some wood in my arms and I got ready to set it down. And my son ran up and said, wait a minute, daddy. And he raked a place in the sand and there it was. And it was like $6,000. And it was the couple from the party that Dick Briggs had pointed to. We meet Tom Kay, who was the principal investigator at Citizen Sleuths, who says he's known the family for years. He's seen nothing that would indicate they had any nefarious connection. Um, we see that the money was all like torn up and in pieces. So we learn about Dick Briggs. Um, he, Based on what he has told... Uh, Ron Carlson and their friends. He is perfectly capable of doing what it took to hijack an airplane. He's, he was special forces during the Vietnam War. He was an accomplished parachutist. He was familiar with the area. They all said he was very intelligent, but he was like kind of out of control. One of his college buddies said that he lost his temper a lot. He thought maybe he was bipolar. He would get angry after a few beers and throw trash cans through windows. As someone who lives with bipolar, I don't really know if I agree with the stigma placed on the disease by saying that people who get angry have bipolar, but who's to say? Um, they said people were scared of him and he could bench press 425 pounds. <laughs> 
And they also said that they called him Bugsy because he was squirrely, which I don't understand. Okay. Um, Why wouldn't they call him squirrely? (laughs) So then we meet Connie Hunt, who was a friend of Dick Briggs, who says that the first time she met him, her husband offered him a cocktail. Unclear if he was a bartender or if they were like at a house party. She said that Dick did a straight shot of bourbon and then ate the glass. And like blood was dripping down his face as he was chewing the glass. We learned that his family said that Dick did a lot of like parlor tricks. He would stick a hat pin all the way through his forearm and then pull it out without drawing blood. Ron says that one time they went up to a little town called Ariel, Washington that holds an annual D.B. Cooper festival. And Dick just kept saying, I just want to tell these people who I am. And they're all here for me. So Tom Colbert says that when he realized that Dick Briggs could actually be D.B. Cooper, he started to document the investigation with the express goal of selling it as a documentary. Love. We love. We love a man with a plan. (laughs) Yes. You've got to get ahead of it. You never know. Um, He says he interviewed Ron Carlson three times, once under a polygraph performed by FBI agent Jack Tremarco. And Dr. Phil alumni, Jack Tremarco. He's in like every episode of Dr. Phil. When they fucking introduced Jack Tremarco, I was like... Our, our guy. This is our guy. We love him. Um, whether or not we believe that polygraphs <laughs> do anything, uh, this is the guy. He's the best. Yeah, he went to polygraph school. He is like... <laughs> He's like the number one polygraph expert in the country, but it's also like... I don't think my father, the inventor <laughs> of the Department of Defense Polygraph Institute. <sighs> yeah. So he's the number one polygraph guy, but... But that's like being the number one Reiki guy. Like, I'm like, I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> if it works for you, it works for you. But like, I don't know. The number one Reiki guy. <laughs> he, is a, he is a Dr. Phil alum, though, which we love. Didn't so they funny. still yeah, have Dr. Phil? I feel like they did. They did, 100%. I wrote, he's been on Dr. Phil. <laughs> so after the polygraph, Tom thought that Ron Carlson was telling the truth. So they started looking into Dick Briggs. And then one day they found out that Dick Briggs had died mysteriously due to, quote, injuries he suffered in a car accident. His friends thought he had been murdered. They say it was a one car accident in the middle of nowhere, Portland. Um, so they tell us that before he died, Dick had talked a lot about Vietnam. Um, but that is where his story had a problem. They, Tom spent eight months looking into Dick Briggs and then found out that Dick Briggs had actually never been to Vietnam. He can't parachute. He was a part-time weekend warrior for the air force. So he wouldn't have had to go to Vietnam. And at that point he's like, okay, this is probably not him. DB Cooper was tall. Dick Briggs was short and stocky. Rich says that Briggs wasn't the guy. He was just, quote, some braggart saying, I'm D.B. Cooper. They don't talk about this, but it's my opinion. And I think I said it in the episode that we did about it. Like, it just doesn't fit the profile at all. Like, 
like the db cooper that we know would not would not walk around and be like i'm db cooper i just want to tell all these guys what a db cooper i am because like his whole deal was like how effortlessly he just like faded into non-existence it's just not like track at all and he also wouldn't go to a db cooper festival no, certainly not. And I also, sorry, I missed a note of mine, which is, I like that Ron Carlson takes the polygraph dressed like a cocaine runner. <laughs> He's wearing like a <laughs> Hawaiian shirt and like cargo shorts, I feel like. And he, I'm like, yeah, you didn't have to, you don't have to yeah, dress like you're running cocaine today. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, the, but the branding is strong. The branding, the branding really is strong. strong. The outfit is like, I don't think that's what he would have worn when he was like in the eighties running cocaine, but it's definitely the outfit that a man in his sixties would wear if he was still running cocaine now. Yes. Yes. Also just want to hop to the chat really quick to say um, that Daniel said polygraph, wouldn't they have used a different method of verifying information? And my answer to that is one would hope so. (laughs) Maggie said, wait, doesn't that mean he's psychic rather than DB Cooper? Also correct. Um, She also says that she's bipolar and she's never thrown a trash can and should, uh, she feels she should take advantage of her right to do so. And I support that. Yes. Maggie, have I ever, I used to, you guys, we're going to have a little mental health corner. When I was little, before I was, when I was like wildly undiagnosed, I had like serious rage problems and I had a throwing stool that was like this little, like heavy wooden stool in my parents' house when I was like eight. And it was like really dense. And it, and so when I got angry, instead of like learning coping mechanisms, I would I was allowed to throw this stool and it was like, I don't know, maybe 20 pounds. And I would just hurl it across the house. And it would like, there was one leg that was broken off from the first time I threw it and it would always break off and we'd glue it back together. So please feel free to throw stuff. <laughs> um, also, Eliza said, ah, yeah, he's real scrawny. So we call him beefcake. <laughs> that is absolutely true. What is, wait, I had a throwing, did I throw my phone a lot? Your LG, your red LG chocolate? Did I foldy, foldy open Red LG flip phone from Sprint? (laughs) Yeah. Throw it a lot? I don't know. I just remember the phone. I don't remember the throwing. Oh, I guess constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Like rage or because I dropped it a lot? Well, yeah, I don't actually remember. I'm excited for Mags to to tell us this information. Apparently it's really obvious. <laughs> Margaret Walters says throwing is very cathartic. And I agree. I actually like threw something recently and I was like, I should throw more stuff. It's the best. We also used to have like a bunch of sugar glass in the house for like some, <laughs> sure, because we were a very television family. No, because my brother needed it for some like project in middle school. And so we had sugar glass lying around and I would like, <laughs> like smash it because it's so I love breaking stuff it really is helpful um I also learned recently when kids are in that phase where they're throwing things they're actually like basically learning about physics and you should give them stuff to throw so that they don't throw the things that they're not supposed to throw but it helps them like understand the world like their physical world so if you have like a like baby in a high chair that just like throws everything off, like give them things to throw because it helps them learn like aerodynamics and like physics and like trajectories. <laughs> yeah, that's your next Newton over there. He's just again right. because you didn't give him an apple yet. Right. Um, also, Daniel says there's a place to take out your anger. And that's true. Maggie did get me a gift card to the <laughs> the rage for room. my birthday mm-hmm. like three years ago. But we do need to yeah. do that still. 
Yes. Hattie also says the high from breaking things is unmatched, unmatched. which is true. And Mag says you broke your phone like three times. My mom brought it up the other day. We'll discuss later. <laughs> um, yeah, I love breaking stuff. I remember on one of my birthdays, like maybe my 27th birthday, the manager of the restaurant that I worked at asked me yes. and I said, I want to break a plate. It was like, okay, yes. come to the other location on your actual birthday. And I showed up and I was like, give me my plate to break. And he gave me a set of plates. <laughs> like three plates, a couple salad plates, a couple bowls. And we stood outside and like threw them off a balcony directly onto asphalt. And I was like, it's, it was so fun. Also great suggestion from Margaret. Um, ripping scrap fabric. Also very cathartic. That's really smart. Yeah. I gotta do that. Okay. Sorry. What were we talking about? We're talking about how Dick Briggs is not bipolar. (laughs) Oh yeah. That's right. Um, okay. So, or Dick Briggs is bipolar, but he also had like an anger issue and they are not the same thing. (laughs) Not at all the same thing. I mean, that is how mine manifested when I was a child and now still too, but. Sure. I mean, rage can be part of mania too. Like that's also a thing. That's true. They figure out he's not the guy. Ron says that he felt terrible because for four years he was told that this man was Stevie Cooper and he didn't even look like him, but he believed him. I felt bad for him. I also feel bad for him. He says, quote, the twists and turns of this whole thing has changed my opinion about almost everything. So I guess nothing will surprise me. So sad. So Jeffrey then appears on screen to tell us about something called the Cooper curse. He says that everybody who looks into the D.B. Cooper case experiences the curse. The case is booby trapped. He says, just as you get close to really thinking, you know who the hijacker is, something comes along the way and shows you that it's wrong. He says, when I started the case, I thought I could solve it too. He tells us that at the time DB came into his life, he was working as a reporter and writer in Manhattan covering crime. And he said he loved taking on cases that were impossible to solve. And when he first got when he was first told about D.B. Cooper, he, he says, quote, I knew that he was mine. And I'm like, hey. Slow your roll. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, he wrote his first book about the case. He, he says, I thought if I solved the case, oh, the Pulitzer Prizes and all the rewards would come in. Um, it took oh, him over no. four years. And then he says, and I'm here to tell you the curse is real. Um, we hear a segment of his audio book about the curse. It's, I think this is a direct quote. Over the decades, some suspects disappeared. Some suspects faked their own deaths. One man nearly died in a custom-built submarine scanning the bottom of the lake for the hijackers' ransom. One renowned reporter attempted suicide after his suspect was proven to be a fraud, and only a study program of electroshock treatment jolted him back into co- into coherency. Jeffrey, like many people in cases like this, also came to the conclusion that the case was not about D.B. Cooper himself, but about the people chasing D.B. Cooper. And this is a real thing in like the community of people who write about unsolved mysteries. Like the, there's a book about Atlantis that I used for the Atlantis episode. That was like, the end of it was like, Mm -hmm. it's not about like whether Atlantis is real. It's about like what it says about the people who look for it. And I'm like, no, 
No, that's what you say when you have a story that doesn't yes. have an ending. I don't care about people looking for Atlantis. I want to know if there's a fucking sunken undersea world with alien technology. <laughs> also, Maggie H just said, quote, one man almost died in a custom-built submarine. Yep, definitely must be the Cooper curse. <laughs> <laughs> and not because that, there's an insanely dangerous thing. That is absolutely true. Also, Margaret said, is it cursed or are investigators just going after wild theories? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Like, is it cursed or are you guys just can't solve it? Are you guys like, grasping at straws and then publishing things right. before you realize they're just straws? Right. Right. Don't count your straws before you publish. Yeah. I mean, curse or bad choices, Eliza said. Curse or bad choices. <laughs> Should I make a shirt that says that? Probably. Awesome. Two good shirts tonight. Um, okay. I'm almost done. Don't worry. So then somebody, I think it's Jeffrey, says the only one more famous in the world than D.B. Cooper is the one who finds him. And I wouldn't argue that D.B. Cooper is that famous. And not to be, like, the only person more famous than him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's fine. But I also don't think... I think if someone found E.B. Cooper, I don't think they'd be No, because they'd be like, that's, like, who's the third guy to walk on the moon? You know, the moon is more famous than him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, that's, like, who's the third guy and without a paddle? <laughs> uh, another good question. <laughs> So then Jeffrey admits that he got to a point where he had four suspects in mind and he thought they were all simultaneously D.B. Cooper. And he said, I pulled yeah. myself back and I thought to myself, why have I gotten to a point where I believe that four people are the same guy? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's not a curse. Asking the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> See, um, he says, it's gold fever in a way. You so want to prove that your suspect is the one that your belief systems take over your logic. And that sounds familiar to some institutions in place. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Then we learn that in the same vein as what Jeffrey was talking about, after finding out that Dick Briggs is decidedly not D.B. Cooper, Tom Goldbear goes, maybe he had a partner. And it's like, no. And Rich says, Tom's tenacity is just amazing. You know, when he sees a dead end, I'm going, okay, that's it. And he just keeps on going. So (laughs) Tom decides to call the Portland Police Department and ask if they have any narcs that remember a guy named Dick Briggs. And a week later, an 80-some-odd-year-old guy gives him a half a dozen to a dozen neighborhood friends of Dick Briggs. And so he started going to them one by one and hearing stories about Dick Briggs. And the last guy he decided to call is, quote, the one that scares me. This man is named Pudgy Hunt. Mm -hmm. And somebody, I don't know who it is, says, I've watched too many cowboy movies where a guy named Pudgy pulls out a sawed-off shotgun. Is that true? I can't name one, but to be fair, I don't think I've seen a lot of Westerns, so... Okay, great. So Pudgy tells us that he is named Pudgy because... Or called Pudgy because when he was nine months old, he weighed 36 pounds. Now, I don't know a lot about child development, but that feels outrageous. 
So we learned that one time Dick introduced a friend of his named Robert Rackstraw. And Robert Rackstraw yeah. had was in the local newspaper yes. as a Green Beret and a medal winner in the service. And then the documentary says that Rackstraw's picture is almost identical to the D.B. Cooper sketch. I do not agree. What I think they did is they put his picture over the sketch and then like slow faded the sketch over it. I think it looks like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Robert Rockstraw had parachute training. Then we cut to an interview with Robert Rockstraw in 1979. And they say, you had parachute training. That means that you could have been D.B. Cooper. And Robert says, could have been, could have been. Tom Colbert <laughs> says, this man had the skill set. And at the time I knew we had, oh, and at this time I knew we had D.B. Cooper. The interviewer says, are you willing to state one way or another, whether you're D.B. Cooper? And Robert says, with a story like that, should it be fiction or should it be fact? It's primarily up to the American people someday, how that comes out. And I was like, crush. Mm-hmm. Colbert's team did some research and found <laughs> out that what Rockstraw was doing when, quote, he wasn't jumping out of planes. They found out that he had all these fake identities. He had multiple criminal titles. Quote, the guy is off the scale. And then the episode ends with a reporter asking him, are you Mm -hmm. D.B. Cooper? To which he responds, I can't talk about things like that. I can't talk about any of that sort of thing. Dun, dun, dun. I wonder if we're going to learn who D.B. Cooper is at the end of this series. <laughs> that would make us famous. Uh, Netflix markets it as unraveling the conspiracy, whatever that means. That means so. they're going to talk about the conspiracy and not answer any questions. <laughs> yeah. Good write-up, though. Well done. Thank you. Um, Shall we go to the chat? Yes. Okay. Margaret um, has a note about Atlantis. I think you covered Heliki in your Atlantis episode, didn't yes, you? Yes, I absolutely yeah. did. That's really, it's really cool. It's like a Greek sunken city, right? I don't remember. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Maggie said it's only cursed if it's from the cursed region of supernatural occurrences. Otherwise, it's just sparkling confirmation bias, <laughs> which sparkling is one of the funnier things I've ever bias. read in my life. That is so, so good. Big, big five stars yeah. <laughs> for Maggie on that one. And then Margaret comes swiftly in with <laughs> this is how we know that with the sparkly emojis. Yeah, this is our team. Um, Hattie says, I think the public would be upset that the real DB was outed and the world would probably implode. I agree. I feel like we'd all be like, narc. Yeah. <laughs> Let DB be. <laughs> Let him be. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. You're so, all you're all very funny. Yeah, as we always say, like I can't offer you a job because I'm not allowed to do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> for legal reasons. <laughs> but you're all part of the mystery. But you team. are for sure. You're the incorporated part, which we're also legally not actually allowed to say, but it's fine. <laughs> it's no, we're protected under the fact that we formed an LLC. Yeah, technically we're Mystery Team LLC. We're not <laughs> Mystery Team Incorporated <laughs> for legal reasons. Somebody that's a story for another day. Who didn't think it through when they named the podcast on a whim <laughs> four years ago? <laughs> so thanks for being here. We'll see yeah. you guys soon. Um, I think we're gonna be back next week with another live. Yeah, uh, but check the Instagram there. for updates. Yeah. 
And see you later. <gasps> we don't know. Stay in your lane. Um, D.B. Cooper smooches. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.